Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. Corporations exist to make money. How can Big Pharma be trusted to fight the opioid epidemic when they profit from it? And how can the soda industry be genuine partners in tackling obesity? My guest, Jonathan H. Marks, argues that public-private partnerships cause webs of influence that undermine the integrity of public health agencies. They also distort public health research and policy and reinforce the framing of public health problems and their solutions in ways that are least threatening to corporations. In his new book, Perils of Partnership, Marx expertly debunks the idea that the solutions to our biggest public health problems reside within the industries that helped create them in the first place. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Jonathan H. Marks. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. You've written a book, The Perils of Partnership, Industry Influence, Institutional Integrity, and Public Health. I'm wondering, are you a contrarian by nature? Because I feel like you're attacking in this book something that in public life, it seems like one of the few things that's sort of assumed that's functional and good, right? Public-private partnerships, right? We In areas like public health, we get corporations to give money and work with the government on solving problems. And you're saying, hey, if something sounds too good to be true, as they say, it often is. And you think that this is prob- much more problematic than I think people are, are willing to admit, right? Um, as to the uh, question, am I a contrarian? I would say that I like to interrogate conventional wisdom. And if something is accepted practice, I want to ask the question, why has it become accepted? And should it be accepted? And public-private partnerships for me are an example of just that. Something that, you know, as I say in the book, policymakers have, it's the water they've learned to swim in. But I want to help some policymakers, um, all policymakers, ideally see why this is problematic, then give them the language to explain to others why it's problematic, and then the uh, the will and intention to do things differently. That's the aim of the book. Yeah, and I, correct me if I'm wrong here. I, this strikes me as an argument that's not partisan. I mean, right, conservatives and liberals could disagree on exactly the scope of how big, say, a federal government or, or a state government agency should be. But but. At the end of the day, whatever your your argument on that point, on, on that point, unless you're an anarchist or something, whatever the role is, it, it should be to protect the interests of the public, right? And so, w- w- this is something that's nonpartisan, right? All all, all people should think it, this is what government should be doing, and this is where you know it, it, the rub is in your book, right? So, absolutely, um, my argument is indeed meant to be a totally nonpartisan argument. Every, I think everyone sees after the Boeing seven three seven Max. Uh, two plane crashes that everyone believes we need some degree of regulation, right? Um, but what I would say that is striking is that there are there is broad support for public-private partnerships, not just in the U.S., but also outside the U.S. And on both sides of the political aisle in the U.S., there is some support. So I actually want people um, on, all, on all sides of the political aisle, all across the political spectrum, to rethink this and to recognize why it's problematic. And one of the arguments that I try and make to help people see this is, look, We totally get that there should be tension and direct conflict between the branches of government, right? The Constitution was described, as one famous scholar, as an invitation to struggle. 
If the White House were to collaborate with the Supreme Court and congressional leaders to draft the next form of um, uh, the next healthcare reform, right? Uh, that would save lots of time and expense because that piece of legislation wouldn't be tied up in the Supreme Court for 10 years with challenges over its constitutionality. But obviously we don't think it's a good idea that the White House should climb into bed with the Supreme Court because its job is to determine the constitutionality of laws and hold the other branches of government accountable. And it can't do that if it's making the laws, nor if it's climbing into bed with the other branches of government. And just let me add that we also, so we get the need for tension and conflict in the, in, in the relationship between the branches of government, sort of public-public relations. And we also understand it in the private sector too. You know, airlines should compete for our business. If they divide markets or they fix prices, we are hurt. We end up paying more. So indeed, collusion is what's sometimes called you know, the supreme evil, as the Supreme Court once called it, of antitrust law. Corporations should compete with each other. They should not collaborate. So if we get the need for attention, struggle, and conflict between the branches of government, public bodies, between uh, corporations, private sector bodies, why is it we think we can solve our most wicked problems, obesity, the opioid crisis, cancer, climate change, why do we think we can solve those by having public and private collaborate? No, I argue, we need separation, tension, and conflict in just the same way. And that separation, tension, and conflict is what enables the government to protect and promote public health, the environment, public safety, and other core dimensions of the public good. Yeah, and you say in your book that this specifically is not about lobbying and these sorts of things, that lots has been written about that. And most people of both parties can see the special interest problems there, right? When corporations that have tons of money are able to influence, exert influence, and maybe there's not enough counter-influence. But you're saying that's that's more obvious to people. What is not as obvious is when a soda company offers to build a big playground or something that's going to help kids not play in, in abandoned housing, drug-infested places or things like this, and it'll it'll give the the you know public housing sector or something or you know somebody that's concerned with public health and and the public well-being more money to actually do that. But then you're also helping a corporation promote itself that's systemically maybe undermining the the public health by selling processed foods and stuff at, at systemic levels. So so you're sort of, you know, kind of what uh, one hand you're taking away with one hand what what you're getting with another, right? I mean, these are some of the problems, right? And so what I, what I argue is often, you know, these um these initiatives, these public private partnerships in their efforts to solve one problem are sowing the seeds of another public health problem. So Coca-Cola for example, and I should add, by the way, that I don't consider corporations to be inherently evil and governments inherently good. As we know from current times, both are capable of good or ill. Yeah, you have a great just... phrase. As someone who loves St. Augustine, you have this great phrase in the intro. You say, this is not a book that presumes a Manichaean worldview, right? I don't look at corporations bad, government good. You say that, look, these can both do good or ill. I mean, they're, they're, they're institutions that have their role. but So we don't expect corporations to act like the government public health promotion sector. It, it, it but what we need is the public health people to pursue that goal and realize that corporations are going to. And the problem is when the twain meet, right? Exactly. And it sort of totally makes sense for corporations to try and seek to exert influence over policymakers and consumers and the public to the full extent that the law permits them to do that. But what I argue is that 
Um, public health agencies, among others, our universities too, have an obligation to insulate themselves from that kind of influence. So, of course, Coca-Cola wants to fund exercise initiatives in parks in London and all across Britain because that burnishes the reputation of the company and it detracts attention from the role of their products in obesity. But does it make sense for those local authorities to partner with them? Similarly, in India, there was an initiative called Support, Support My School, right? Trying to improve sanitation, among other things, in schools in rural India. A, a, a really important issue, but the gender equity dimension, when sanitation is poor, the girls drop out before the boys. So we wouldn't argue with the goal of doing so. But to partner with Coca-Cola for a tiny sum of money from their point of view, they got a months-long advertising campaign, a 12-hour telethon with their colors and their logos. And, you know, um, so in order to solve uh, one problem, sanitation, they're sowing the seeds of another public health problem, obesity. And the, the UN agency that was partnering with the Indian government and Coke on this initiative, its, it's, an, its whole mission was to promote sustainability. But by promoting the consumption of sugar-sweetened beverages made from scarce local water and sold in plastic bottles, that's neither sustainable from an environmental nor a public health point of view. Yeah, and it's the best kind of free advertising, right? Because it's not just a, 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 an ad campaign, but it's it's getting kind of the UN seal of approval. As you're, you're now not just a good, you're not just getting effective advertising. You're getting the role of good systemic corporate citizen. You. You're a part of the solution, not part of the problem, Coke. And, and that is priceless, right, for, for a corporation. This is um, advertising that would cost you much more to pay for than, to pay, you know, than by making donations. And it's, as you say, better than advertising because you get the imprimatur of a public body. I will tell you that, as you know, um, Purdue Pharma pleaded guilty in 2007 to misleading uh, physicians and patients about the abuse and addiction risks of their drug. And then according to recent court filings in Massachusetts, they continue to engage in those practices for another decade. While the, NH, the NIH was inviting them to sit around the table in a partnership initiative to deal with the epidemic, they were running ads in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times saying, as you say, we are partners, we are part of the solution. And at the same time, they were still developing plans to expand the market for opioids and for drugs designed to treat the addiction that their aggressive marketing had created or exacerbated. My Aunt Edie, great Aunt Edie, is, is bl of blessed memory now. She was a very wise woman. She was a beloved woman, was in higher education and just a very civic-minded, her and her husband, very civic-minded people. So around the holidays, around Christmas, she would, you know, I'd often be at her house and people would stop by unannounced with gifts. And she always had a closet full of the holidays of unisex kind of gifts. Oh, I have your gift right here. Because she, I think what I learned later was she always, she saw that oftentimes a gift is not really a gift. It's an implicit exchange. So I want to obligate you by the gift. And so she was very wise. She was never obligated at the holidays. She always, you know, she'd never, no one ever went up to her. And I think like she knew something that you point out in your book, a lot of government agencies don't understand when they take the gift, right? When they take some, you know, what to them seems like a large yes, but it's really usually not that sacrificial for the corporation. They don't see sometimes the obligations. And you have actually a mnemonic device, right? It's a price, I think, right? All these things where you've got to see like what's behind the gift, you know, like, 
look a gift horse in the mouth. That's basically what you're arguing, right? Yeah. So I do have a um, perhaps a rather corny um, mnemonic, which is, you know, uh, every gift comes at a price. And then the, the different letters stand for different ways of thinking about the dimensions of a gift that might be ethically important and the influence and reciprocity that arises. But absolutely, I think... Um, what companies know is that reciprocity works to their benefit. And um, what's especially problematic, I think, and they don't often realize, is what I call the tyranny of the next gift, right? So if I were to say to you, Scott, here's $10 million, do with it as you please. Well, there's no strings attached formally to that gift. But if you know that I have plenty more where that came from and that I may, might give you more, are you going to do anything, not just with that money, but anything at all to upset me? No, because you want the next gift, right? And that's deeply problematic. So I describe these kind of uh, some... This uh, is the drug pusher logic, right? Like give it to them <laughs> cheap or free on the front to get them hooked and then we can charge whatever we want once we have the addict. Yeah, so um, the similar uh, analogous strategies perhaps, yes. Um, <laughs> But, 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 you know, reciprocity isn't always bad. You know, reciprocity between, you know, me and a partner in terms of who does the washing up and who does the cooking and cleaning and all the rest of it, that can be fine. Reciprocity between friends and family members, between professional colleagues, sure. But when one of us has an obligation to protect third parties, like public, the public's health, and the other is engaged in activities which are creating or exacerbating problems that are harming those third parties, and reciprocity between us can be deeply problematic. Yeah, we'd be concerned I, if we saw the, the the attorney for the plaintiff, you know, and the defendant, you know, or, you know it, it just going back and saying, well, I'll scratch your back. I mean, that would trouble us, right? Uh, especially if we were in the suit. <laughs> because somebody else might well get hurt, yes. And so that's, the, that's my central concern is, yeah, in some cases, um, and it's a, it's a, my, I have the same concern with compromise too. You know, as I say in the book, and, and I, have a, I have a TED talk on which the book is based in praise of conflict. And I basically make the point there, look, conflict is not inherently bad and compromise is not inherently good. It depends who's fighting, how they're fighting and why they're fighting. And if you and I, Scott, make a deal that harms a million other vulnerable people, then even though it's a great compromise between us, it's terrible from an ethical point of view from all the for, for the, all the people we're hurting. So I think we need a more sophisticated view of conflict and compromise. Yeah, and you also talk about in the book how, and this is, seems rampant in our in society, in, at least in, well, I guess probably globally, but it, this sense of looking at every problem in terms of personal responsibility. So, it, and you'd say, like, I don't begrudge corporations making snack food or sugary sodas, and if people want to have one once in a while, but systemically, when it's the only food option, for instance, in, in places in Mexico where they, they're selling the, the high-end organic corn or whatever, and then the only thing that, I think Mexico is the number one consumer now of processed noodles, like ramen sort of stuff, right? It's When it's only systemically the only thing available that you can eat, and it, it, it contributes to all these public health problems it's not just individual decision making anymore but 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 the terms of pro- of personal responsibility well we you know nobody's making people uh you know drink the soda we can even put a tax on it or something like that though that doesn't take into account the systemic effects which allegedly the public sector is supposed to monitor and 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 protect yeah absolutely i think one of the one of the most insidious parts of public private partnerships is that sort of cumulatively as well as individually they start to frame public health problems 
and their solutions in ways that are least threatening to the corporate partners. And so, as you rightly say, diet becomes totally a question of personal responsibility. And corporations say, we provide a range of products. Com uh, consumers can buy whichever ones they like. Um, and then it becomes, a, you know, it's a problem of personal responsibility. It's a problem of energy balance, as the sort of companies want us to think. It's a problem of lack of physical activity. So all ways of turning the focus on individual behaviors rather than recognizing the ways in which major multinational food and soda companies are shaping food systems and are shaping behaviors. You know, we have cheese-stuffed crust pizzas not because Americans were banging at the doors of pizza companies saying, could you inject some cheese into our pizza crust? <laughs> That's born because of one of these public-private partnerships where the government recognized there was a glut of cheese on the American market, and they went to the most underselling pizza company, Domino's, and they said, here, you want to steal a march on your competition, you want to do better, the solution is to find a way of getting more cheese into your pizza. And voila, the, ch the, ste the ch cheese-stuffed crust pizza was born. God bless America. <laughs> wow. I mean, the country that gives birth to the stuffed cheese. I, I should say, but by the way, that it wasn't just pizza. You know, the, 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 this initiative also resulted in a Taco Bell menu item that contained eight times as much cheese as the average menu item, as they call them. And, you know, that was a point of pride. It led to a, not surprisingly, to a headline in the New York Times to the effect of, while U.S. Um, warns about fat, it pushes cheese sales. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Andrew Stravitz, Barry Stewart, Ben Crosby, Ben DeHart, Carol Clemens, Charlotte Donlin, David Norling, David Saul, Ellis Brazil, Jennifer Spite, Jennifer Underwood, Jim Cress, Joel Wentz, John Schneider, Jonathan Butran, Jordan Mossberger, Josh Redder, Kai Wittenpeg, Larry Rule, Liam O'Brien, Michael Butera, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Konauer, Sari Graham, Simone Garabedian, and Stephen Rowe. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. Yeah, and so when you talk about the systemic levels, right, this is because you, when a average consumers just can't afford to go to, what do they call uh, Whole Foods, Whole Paycheck, right? Like, I mean, that, that, of course you have individual liberty and freedoms, but the system is such that you'd have to channel so much, uh, so, uh, so much of your resources in your, in your personal budget to food that for many people, it's not sustainable. It's, it's a, it's sort of for the privileged, right? I mean, it's interesting because 
it used to be that the 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 working class were thin and kind of gaunt, and the manager was uh, portly. But now it's like the the workers are are portly because they can't afford to eat anything other than processed food, and the manager has time to go to the gym and eat organically. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And many people, of course, don't live in areas where they have access to palatable fruit and vegetables. You know, they live, sometimes they don't have access to fresh fruit and vegetables at all. Um, and they live in food deserts. And sometimes, you know, often when I travel around the country and I go to places, I just go in and look at the food on the supermarket, the local supermarket and see what it's like. And, you know, sometimes it's not very palatable. But when McDonald's says, you know, we're also going to sell apples as sides, you know, these are pre-cut apples packaged in, so, you know, with sodium dioxide. They're, they're tasteless. They're unpalatable for most people, right? If you really want to get people to eat fresh food, you have to make good quality fresh food accessible to them. And unfortunately, many people live in food deserts where it's not. I had somebody on the podcast last year who wrote a book called From Gangsters to Governors. And it was about organized about gambling and how started in, in, in mafia circles and now it's sort of the governors run it because governors of both parties love it because you get to raise revenue. It's an invisible tax. No one likes to raise taxes. It makes you unpopular. And so this thing, it's legal in 48 states and it funds so much of our infrastructure and there's never a debate about it. It's just kind of, you know, because, hey, people, individual responsibility, people can gamble if they want. It's a huge tax, usually disproportionately on poor people, but it funds things and there's, I mean, it, it's one of these things that's so elusive and and, and this is sort of the problem, right? That the, 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 the issue you're identifying with these partnerships is it's so hard to see the downside unless you're deliberate and want to. Right. I mean, it's easy to see it, it, it's a case. It, the case is much easier for the corporation and for the public sector who wants to look like they're getting things done. It's much easier to, for them to make their case than for the average citizen to be critical of it or care. Right. Yeah. It is interesting, though, of course, that you mentioned the lottery. So I grew up in Britain. And we had a controversy, a debate when the lottery was introduced. And I don't think the debate has ever died, totally died down, but we did have a debate about it. Um, and my next book may well be about the ethics of the lottery and looking at, at, at literature as well as life, where there are lots of examples of lottery. So that may be my next project. Um, but, but I do want to, you know, what I really do want in the book is not just to make policymakers see, but make people in the public see why this is problematic. So they can, so when their policymakers say to them, hey, this is a win-win-win, we're partnering with industry to improve public health, and we, the government, benefit, the corporations benefit, and you, often consumers, quote-unquote, benefit, you know, I want the public to know that they're being sold something, um, you know, and I want them to recognize that this is deeply, deeply problematic, and they shouldn't be patting their, their you know, local politicians on the back for every public-private partnership. And, and just as your argument as we talked about before, is, is nonpartisan in nature, right? Like you, you shouldn't, there's not a left or right tone to this argument. It's just, it just assumes that government has a, a sort of fiduciary responsibility. And it, it, the perpetrators of this is are, are not partisan either, right? I mean, public officials right and left love this, right? I mean, this is, again, this is how you quote unquote, I'm getting things done, you know, look at all the, you know, and, 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 and bridging gaps and, and collaboration. I mean, it's, it, this is something that like, no, partisan has an interest on any side of the aisle to really dig their heels in against. I mean, I, I think, you know, there may be some uh, candidates on the left who are not yet in office who might be skeptical, but once they're in office, I think they'll feel the pressure that politicians feel to show they've done something and these might be very um, attractive. And so I want to give them, you know, I want to give them pause for thought to recognize why they're problematic. Now, I should say that people often ask me, 
Well, is this principally an American problem because we, we have campaign finance and lobbying and all the rest of it? And I would say, look, it, it is a particular problem in the U.S., but even in countries like Britain where campaign finance is much more tightly regulated, right? Um, there's still broad support for public-private partnerships there. You see it everywhere from India to uh, Brazil, Malaysia, you name it. It's, you know, because multinationals exist across the globe and they try and create this influence wherever they can go. And governments strapped for cash are often very tempted. You know, that uh, you'll hear people say, well, it's impossible to be totally clean. Now... <laughs> That doesn't, you know, and they often use that as an excuse to say, so no source of money is perfectly untainted, so let's just take it and do the best we can. And I think that's, you know, I think that's giving in. I think, look, corporations have real strategies, right? We all have smartphones in our hands because one guy said just about 10 years ago, how can I get this device in everyone's hand? Corporations have grand strategies that go out decades or two. We need public bodies to have similar strategies to say, look, maybe we can't get all the corporate money out of our public health initiatives tomorrow, but how do we get there in two years or five years or 10 years? What's the path from here to there? And that's what I want to get them to start thinking about. Um, rather than to think about, you know, I'm coming up for an election next year. Um, what can I do then? You know, how can we get politicians to think about the bigger picture and their contribution to that bigger picture? Yeah. And I wonder if, I mean, so much of reality is dictated by emotional myths, right? That, that we live by and we assume are just, you know, it's, it's again, like trying to think about the water you're swimming in sometimes, but, but often those myths are just that they're myths, right? And myths are powerful because they give us meaning and direction and tell us how the universe is ordered. But I mean, some of these myths are that this is inevitable, right? That, that, that it's not just uh, uh, people setting these goals, but it's also pushing back against the myth that this is inevitable. And this is, you know, and so we try, to manage it and we try to you know do it the best we can and you're questioning some of the myth of the inevitability of the whole thing right absolutely i I understand why these are very compelling myths but i'm um i'm not totally um i'm not totally pessimistic about this i think we see some glimmers of hope right so what i argue in the book is if you if you take away public private partnerships people are going to say well how else do we get things done and i say well there are other models that you need to think about and explore um, and, you know, some of these models should appeal to people irrespective of where they are in the political spectrum. Others will be more attractive to certain people depending where they are in the spectrum. But here's an example of a model which should be attractive wherever you are, is to think about public-public partnerships, you know, public agencies partnering with other institutions in the public sphere that have the same uh, mission and purpose that they do. So, for example, a local authority in D.C. partnering with state, uh, federal, and maybe um, the WHO, public health agencies, right? It's vertical partnerships or horizontal partnerships. The attorneys general get together every few, you know, every few months and they collaborate. That's what we see now, collaboration and litigation against opioid companies. So thinking about vertical, horizontal and combined collaborations with other public health agencies may be one way to go. Um, I think that's a, 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 an approach that should appeal to people, whatever their politics might be. But I also think, you know, we need to rethink the role of government and regulation. We have a popular narrative here that regulation is somehow inimical to the American <laughs> to American myths of, of the common good and well-being. And I think, I think that's a deep mistake. Regulation is what promotes the public good. What, it's, it's what ensures that corporations act um, in ways that don't harm us. You know, when the whole Boeing 737 MAX thing started to uh, blow up earlier on uh, 
this month, you know, the CEO of Boeing called up the president and said, we have every confidence in our planes. Now, the president's reply should have been, Mr. CEO, um, it's neither here nor there whether you have confidence in your planes. What matters is whether our regulators have confidence in your planes and whether the public should have confidence in your planes, right? And that, too, people should be able to see whichever seat of the aisle they sit in, in Congress or an airplane. Yeah, and isn't one of the challenges, too, with regulations that, again, this is part of the influence issue, that oftentimes massive multinational corporations for for monopolistic sort of trust reasons will sometimes support regulations, but helping craft them in a way that they're the only ones that will be able to to kind of comply because they have all these lawyers that they could spend all this money on compliance. So sometimes big corporations are use regulation to eliminate competition, right? <laughs> no, absolutely. And there, for example, in the area of fracking, right, there are some of the large companies want more regulation to knock some of the smaller players that are giving fracking its worst reputations. Um, uh, you know, they want to get knock them out the market. So it is true that sometimes corporations collaborate um, on legislation to eliminate, you know, some of the competition. That's true. But the broader problem is, and there was just a piece in USA Today, I think, in the last week or two, showing that the vast majority of legislation that's, you know, that's drafted by the private sector and then embraced with very little modification by legislators who don't have time to draft, let alone read legislation, right? You know, much of that really does serve a corporate agenda. So, you know, there's a piece of legislation which has been bouncing around various states called the Asbestos Transparency Act, which is basically, I understand, also drafted by industry. Um, and if anything can be said about it, it is not transparent about um, the authorship, namely the companies, nor transparent about the ways in which um, it makes it harder for people to sue those companies. So we have lots of legislation with very benign titles and lots of bills with very benign titles bouncing around that are essentially drafted um, by lawyers representing private sectors who would, entities who would be affected by that legislation. And that's, I think, deeply problematic. One of the things I, I find attractive about your writing is what you say explicitly in the book, that you, you're not a Manichaean, that, that you, you're not trying to idolize government or demonize government, idolize the market nor demonize the market, that all of these things have their place and, and in a kind of uh, adversarial but not kind of uh, Manichaean perspective that that, that there's certain kind of tension is creative and productive and and not counterproductive. I I wonder, is some of the challenge that an argument like yours faces is just the tribalism and demonization that happens all over our culture where people often are Manichaean about the market or about government or about, I mean, it, it seems that it's very difficult for many people, at least in a country like the United States, to have the kind of civic imagination you're talking about, like that, 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 that there is more of a Manichaean pull uh, towards that sort of, you know, lens on our public life. No, absolutely. I think there is. And I think it does. I think it does make it difficult to have a real conversation about these issues. But what that's why I try to, in the book, I try to draw on separation of powers and antitrust as as, you know, analogies to get people to understand that tension and conflict of certain kinds isn't inherently bad, and that may often show you how the system is working. I mean, what I would also say to people is, 
you know, I totally expect when I talk to people who work in the pharmaceutical industry that they should complain about the regulators. If they're not complaining about the regulators, what are the regulators doing? Right? That's exactly right. It should feel, from the point of view of a pharmaceutical company, it should feel like the regulator is a constraint on your activity. It should feel like the regulators are creating hurdles for you. That's exactly what it should feel like when the system is working. And if you feel like the regulators aren't presenting constraints or obstacles, you have to worry about the system, whether the system's working. And you may feel totally confident in your enterprise as the CEO of a company, but are you so confident in the enterprise and business practices of your competitors? Don't you want them to be regulated? So yes, I totally think... And one can look at this in a totally non-partisan way and say the system works when there is tension. This, the idea that us all cozying up together may f- make us feel very good, but is ultimately, in my view, a, a, a very dangerous way of looking at things. Yeah, I wonder also is that sort of that kind of cozying up sort of thing. I wonder if that is part of our sort of tribal past. I mean, you know, human evolution, like tribalism has worked, right, for long periods of time. And and it seems like the Enlightenment Liberal Democratic Project is not non-tribal, cosmopolitan. It also requires competition, right? You don't have all this competition, hunter-gatherer, pre-modern tribal or even fiefdom kind of society. And so that kind of, but, you know, when we get anxious, you have chronic anxiety, like the tribal pool probably feels comfortable to have, you know, corporation, government all come together, you know, let's make America great again or something, you know, but actually that is the, those impulses are probably not the angels of our better nature, right? I mean, the, those might just be the, the demons of our anxious nature. So I do feel like I'm pushing back against a lot of what, you know, behavior, evolutionary biologists and behavioral psychologists tell us. They all tout reciprocity and some say that, you know, um, that really we haven't been designed to conflict with each other. We are essentially reciprocal creatures and that's terrific and that's a great thing. And I would say, yes, you totally make sense when you think of, you know, small villages with 155, 150 people in them, why they need to collaborate um, and share and exchange. That totally makes sense. And there's but no the- division of – everybody does the same thing, right? Like basically, you know, except maybe on gender, you know, or something. Basically, there's no corporations and public sector and – defense forces and everybody's everything, right? So it's easier to have that kind of pull. No, and and now we've created these very complex societies which have different kinds of entities working in very different ways. And I think that's important to recognize that we've created, we have totally created corporations to make a profit by selling goods and services. That's how they exist. And we should totally expect them to respond to incentives. If you reward companies in the billions of dollars for selling opioids and the penalties for um, aggressive marketing and downplaying the risks of addiction abuse are very small, it's not surprising that corporations will aggressively promote. Um, What we have to do is create a system which creates penalties for fraudulent practices to discourage corporations from doing so. Not because I think all corporate managers are inherently evil, but because if you create powerful and structural incentives for people to behave in a certain way, they will behave in that way no matter how long you lecture them until you're blue in the face about ethics. You know, we know this from another field too, with the training of medical students. You can talk to them to your blue in the face about medical ethics, but if they get mentored about how to get ahead in the profession by other doctors, and that mentoring involves violating fundamental ethical norms, that's what they'll do. So you need not just ethical education, you need the right kind of mentorship, you need the right structural incentives. 
we're not simply particles in Brownian motion. We do respond to ethical education. We do, you know, we can be enhanced by that. But in addition, we need to make sure that there aren't powerful incentives to misbehave. And, you know, the way I, what I say to my students is the fundamental question for us all is how do we create communities and societies that promote the kinds of ethical behaviors we want to see in ourselves and others? What, what's the best critical pushback you've had on, on this these kinds of arguments? I mean, and, and where does it come from? Does it come from public, private, or, or both? Um, that's really interesting. I have, you know, I've met people um, from the private sector who listen to me when I'm, you know, I'm, they come up to me at the end of presentations I give at public health meetings, uh, you know, because they often send, industry often sends people there to hear what's going on in a particular field. And they smile and they listen to me and they, and they sometimes come up to me and they talk afterwards and they're very charming and I try to be equally charming. Um, the pushback uh, comes, I think, often from people who are engaged in these practices in the, on, you know, in, the, in the public sector and who feel like their ability to get things done depends on that. And so, in fact, you know, there was a piece just in the New England Journal of Medicine in the last few weeks where academics, where I think um, academics at Harvard were arguing in favor of these relationships. Um, and they were trying to make as best they could, I think, a coherent argument. Um, but I think that the best arguments neglect the systemic problem. You know, so often people will say, show me a model partnership and I'll copy that. And, you know, I say, well, that's the wrong question. Because, yes, sure, some partnerships, like the Coke ones with the colors and the logos of the soda company and the, the free advertising, they're obviously conspicuously problematic. But the cumulative effect of these relationships, which is to reinforce the underfunding of public health agencies, to diffuse any effort to get Congress to fund them um, more effectively... These cumulative effects, which include, as we've already said, the framing of public health problems and their solutions in ways that are at least threatening to the corporate partners, you, that, that's deeply, deeply problematic. And you don't address those if you just try to design one little model partnership after another. You're ignoring the fact that these relationships are parts of webs of relations that corporations build with the, private with the public health agencies and others in the public sector to create influence. And by running into the arms of industry, we are essentially exacerbating that influence. Public health agencies have to stand back and say, how can we achieve our public health goals and insulate ourselves from influence? And can I just let me just add one other thing? You know, I don't think this is easy, but what they have to stop doing, and I've said this to admin university administrators, including my own, I've said public health agencies and universities have got to stop taking money from industry with great public acclaim and celebration, and keeping their reservations to themselves. It's time to express the reservations, and if they don't have the courage to do it individually, they should do it jointly. Write an open letter, a joint open letter. All the deans of the schools of public health in North America could write a letter to the um, you know, to the whichever department they want, the NIH, to the Department of Commerce, whatever, and express their concern. And, you know, if you think that's unrealistic, I will tell you that just a few years ago, all the university presidents of 121 or something, 127 universities in North America did just that. They wrote a letter to the Department of Commerce and they said, don't constrain our relationships with the private sector. If we, need, if we want to get the work done, we need to get done. We need private sector money. In my view, they could equally have written the following letter. They could have said, you are expecting us, public health agencies, 
research universities, you are expecting us to solve the world's most wicked problems, cancer, climate change, obesity, the opioid epidemic. If we're serious about solving these problems, we have to be able to look at all potential solutions, not just those that favor the interests of industry. There's a great scene in the in the serial drama The West Wing where this one senator played by Alan Alda says, he's going to a pharmaceutical uh, company meeting, he says, if you can't take their money, eat their food and drink their booze and then vote against them, you don't belong in this business. <laughs> and, and there's something to be said for that, right? I mean, like, you, you, that, that if, you, if you can't if if you can't take this money without your integrity and the ability to speak frankly, then, you know, maybe you shouldn't take it at all. Yeah, he he has that Alan, Alan Alda character has another great line where he says, you know, if you ask for religiosity from your politicians, you're asking to be lied to. <laughs> right, because it's the easiest lie ever. Yeah. 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 And, and I think, yeah, it's it's time to, to be honest about... Uh, now, the thing is that people are often... You know, and it's a problem we all have. We're slightly deluded. We're self-deluded in this respect. Yeah, we're not. Ra- we're ha- not rational animals, right? We're rationalizing animals. <laughs> Often that is the case. Yes. If you ask physicians whether they are influenced by gifts from industry, they tell you no. If you ask them whether they think their fellow physicians are influenced, they say yes. <laughs> <laughs> That can't be right. It can't be the case that no physician is influenced and all their physician friends are influenced, right? That simply doesn't work. So we all like to think that we're free from bias, but the point is that we're all subject to heuristics and biases, and we have to think about how to address them. And sometimes you need a systemic solution. Let me give you an example in another area. So there was a huge gender bias in the recruitment of um, members of an orchestra. They hired many more men than women. The only solution to that problem turned out to be auditioning musicians behind a barrier so the conductor and concertmaster can't see whether it's a man or a woman playing the violin. This is Jonathan Rawls goes to the orchestra, right? <laughs> John Rawls and the orchestra, <laughs> the orchestra yes. right? the, the, the yeah, veil yeah, of ignorance. Yeah, yeah. Yes, absolutely. And so, but, but that's a great example of a structural solution. And sometimes we have to think about structural and systemic solutions, right? Um, and that means recognizing that we are influenced. Well, I'll tell you, I wish more people were writing about these sort of subversive and hard to see kind of issues. And and your book is a great model, The Perils of Partnership. Thanks for writing it. And thanks for spending some time talking uh, with me about it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure is all mine. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Jonathan for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, The Perils of Partnership. It's a great read. You won't regret it. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.